Welcome to Executive Tools, the hallmark of the executive, part two. This cast answers these questions. What makes an executive effective? How can I become an effective executive? What skills make an executive effective? Well, if you want answers to these questions and more, keep listening. Here we go. Okay, Mark, so we were talking about, um, you know, the young professional or Mandrew looks upward in the organization and they see executives and they wonder whether they have the skills and abilities to, yep. to get to get that far. And there's some uh, misunderstandings of maybe what it takes to be yeah. an executive. So we're talking about kind of those skills and abilities. And we last week we talked about, or two weeks ago, I guess, we talked about business capabilities. And that's not necessarily the strategy, the, the, finance. The, yeah, yeah the, the 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 one and only thing you gotta do are right. And the next one people think about is well. I look up and I just see a bunch of smart people. So maybe I just, maybe just intellectual capabilities. Maybe I don't have the intellectual capability of being an executive. Yeah, there's all kinds of data that the people at the top of organizations are smarter, quote unquote, than the average performer. There is a great scene um, that sort of codifies this in the movie Zero Dark Thirty, the movie about the U.S. SEAL team that uh, the mission to kill Osama bin Laden, where the female CIA, ma CIA manager, who's the heroine of the piece, fantastic, has recently given a briefing to the senior, senior CIA leadership after, you know, forever being asked for authority or approval to do things and was told no, was told no, finally got up with senior people. And after the briefing, which for all intents and purposes went well, the CIA director asks an attendee what he thought of the briefing and this attendee jeremy responds with i think she's bleeping smart and the cia director responds with we're all smart jeremy right at that level you hope that we have very intelligent people but but here's the thing there's data to support this and it's like so much of the data in the world that you read an article that says, well, it's scientifically, it's statistically significant that people at the top on average, you know, are smarter, however, criteria, whatever criteria you use. For a long time, it was IQ. There are other ways to measure it. But that statistically significant data is really, as a phrase I like to use, not dispositive. It does not dispose of the issue. The difference in IQ or the difference in intellect, however, whatever test, whatever metric you want to use is statistically significant and scientifically measured, but generally very hard to distinguish. It's like the saying that uh, women are more nurturing. I'm sure I'll get in trouble for this. On, on using DISC, uh, if you measure 100 women, 51 of them will be on the right-hand side of DISC, which is the people side, and 49 of them will be on the left-hand side, the task side, the logical, linear, rational side. Now, technically, in large samples, that's statistically significant. But it's useless in day-to-day -day life. One, because you don't interact with thousands of women at a time or thousands of senior leaders at a time. You only interact with one who may or may not be on one side or the other, flip a coin is about what 5149 represents. And there are, on the other side of the argument about this, there are all kinds of examples of what 
the person who was being talked about and the people around them said were average intellect people who were executives who absolutely performed brilliantly that say openly, I never thought of myself as smart, who didn't test in the top five percentile or whatever the quintile or the decile, all the scientists use words to make their stuff sound unapproachable. And, and look, you can go further than that. We've learned in the past 40 years, because no matter how much smarter you're getting, folks, uh, I, I certainly learned this after 61 years on this earth, no matter how hard you work to get smarter, and I try to work pretty hard at it, the world of knowledge is expanding faster than you can keep up because the world of knowledge expands as a function of the people in the world. And there are more people in the world than there are you. So there are so many facets of intelligence. You could say knowledge of the business is a facet of executive knowledge or intellect, which is what we talked about two weeks ago. A great many organizations, though, don't prioritize broad, multifaceted career paths in their developmental discussions, right? It's entirely possible that someone could become a senior executive with a narrow sort of climb through the ranks of my own specialty career. They could. You could just spend all your life in sales. There are many companies that do it this way. So then you have to ask, how smart is that person in the metric of knowledge of the business? Probably not as much as someone who has had a variegated career who has moved through different facets of the business. So while there's no question that a broad knowledge of the business is an important skill, it's like many others. It's not dispositive. It's not necessarily highly predictive of executive success based on the data we've seen. Well, how, how about technical knowledge? That's talked a lot yeah, about oh very frequently yeah. days and maybe, maybe to excess you know, around technology innovation stuff. I would certainly say to excess. And what's, what's interesting about that for you and I is that people take it for granted now that technical knowledge is the same, is the thing. But you and I remember a time before the growth of the internet, even before, I mean, I remember when Silicon Valley was citrus groves and farms, and it was not a thing that before then, technical knowledge was not even in the discussion. Mm -hmm. Even at places like Bell Labs, it was not in the discussion. Now, I'm not saying one is right or wrong, but... We had a long history before technical knowledge was measured in a way that would determine that, yes, senior leaders, executives are somehow more technically smart than others. Yeah. Even, even companies like Applied Materials, they, the, the best technical people are not necessarily in the leadership positions, right? We, we know some of them, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And look, the, the discussion of technology or technical skills is certainly has to be to some degree a function of the excessive coverage that is given to the growth of the technology industry over the past, say, what, quarter century. But you're right. There aren't a lot of technical PhDs or even technical master's degrees running major organizations. So let's go further. What about memory? Uh, this is something that I don't think is studied enough. What about processing capabilities as part of intellectual capabilities? Right. You're not talking about technical computers here. You're talking about no, no, people, no. mind, mental processing. Mental yeah, processing. Exactly. Yeah. 
I would say that memory and processing capabilities are important, but there's not a lot of data on it. And it, therefore, I would be very surprised if it was dispositive on that being a distinguishing factor. What about creativity? I hear that a lot. Yeah. I, in my opinion, okay, in my estimation, creativity is widely misunderstood. I'm not talking about by the scientists. I'm talking about day-to-day folks like us. There's an overemphasis on creativity coming out of creative roles like marketing or graphic design. But there are so many untold stories of managers and individual contributors seeing things differently, trying something different, maybe because they're confronted with an obstacle and they just say, well, I don't know any other way to do it, so I'll, I'll do this. And they experiment in small ways and they have a win. But nobody ever goes down because the senior person running the plant thinks, well, they solved that problem. I don't really care how. I'm just glad that the problem got solved. The number got made, right? And they don't get credit for creativity. But that's exactly what it is. You're confronted with a problem. You exhaust the choices that you and the people around you think make sense. They don't make sense. You try something different, and that works. In fact, I I would argue that in in the majority of large organizations, creativity takes a, a notable backseat to just straight ahead playbook execution. And let's be honest, if I am a person who, even if I'm told I'm creative, even if I think I am then creative, and then I join a company that prioritizes the playbook over everything else, and I don't use my creativity muscle, I understand folks, don't write me and tell me there's no such thing, or I'm mixing metaphors. I do that all the time. If I don't use my creativity muscle for years and years and years on end, what are the chances that I'm still as creative as people told me I was or I believed that was? Mm, maybe not as much. And that, look, let's go the other, the dark side of this. The myriad examples of managers being called on the carpet because they didn't follow the playbook when things went wrong, right? Somebody decides, maybe we can do a little shortcut here and it doesn't work out and then suddenly we're behind, Right? Those stories of people getting in trouble for trying something different travel like wildfire in organizations. And in my opinion, obviously, they inhibit managerial creativity. Why? Because they inhibit managers from trying different stuff, which is creativity. So you look at all these, and I'm not saying we've covered the waterfront on how you could measure intellect or smarts, but I think you could safely say that intellectual capability matters but not in a way significant enough that we could argue that it's a distinguishing hallmark of executives. I just don't. Yeah. Okay. I want, I want my leaders to be smart. I want them to be smarter than me, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, Somebody who is all things being equal. I'd take the smart person over the, yeah, sure. The one who wasn't, which brings up the horseman's law of at Bootna, all things being equal, which they never are. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. Right, Exactly. Okay, so how about how about um, I don't hear this talked about as much these days, but there was a period I don't know a decade ago where emotional maturity was talked about a lot. What about emotional maturity? Yeah, actually, it's making a huge comeback right now here in 2020, in the second decade, I guess, or the start of the third decade of the 21st century. The growth of the idea of EQ, emotional quotient, an attempt to codify emotional maturity in a way that gave it a measurement like IQ, I think is worthy of being 
in the discussion. Uh, I, I don't particularly care for the present EQ instruments that uh, purport to measure it. I, I find them not complete and uh, not biased. That's the wrong word. I don't mean to suggest that they are trying to get a certain result. I just don't, I, they don't appeal to me when I look at the instruments. Uh, so therefore, if I don't like the instrument, I think I'm going to have problem with the output about whether someone is has high emotional maturity or not. But look, let's be clear. I, I don't mean to make this about an instrument. We have long said at manager tools and at career tools, and we will long say in executive tools, professional maturity is a requirement for managerial and professional success. And we have almost always, anytime we said that, followed up by saying that emotional maturity is a core component of professional maturity. You can't call yourself a true professional and have low emotional maturity. Now, I use the word maturity there to separate it from EQ because I don't want somebody saying, well, I'm doing pretty well in my career and I have a really low EQ score. Yeah, I don't, don't really care about that. But then again, how do we account for the many thousands of senior leaders well-known for their inspirational leadership, which is often accompanied by a tendency towards temperamentalism, outbursts, scathing diatribes? You know, in my opinion, the ability to control and harness one's emotions are core to emotional maturity and EQ. And there are certainly plenty of examples of senior leaders who are in no way inspirational, but also then given to diatribes and famous dressing downs, right? And I'll tell you something else. I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. There's even a vein of popularity associated with being, quote, on the spectrum, unquote, referring to the autism spectrum, by the way, which includes Asperger's syndrome, which is a well-known syndrome in the spectrum. And being on the spectrum sometimes evidences itself in limited ability to interact effectively with others about emotional or interpersonal issues. And there are plenty of senior leaders who actually are proud of being on the spectrum. Uh, and I think there is a belief, I'm not convinced that it's true though, that, oh, because I don't interact well with other people, I'm somehow smarter in a technical or logical or rational or insightful technological way. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the data is, but I would be surprised if the old saying that, oh, blind people, they hear better, or people who are deaf see better. I don't think there's a lot of scientific evidence for that. I do think they use different skills differently, and I think all human beings are gifted with incredible plasticity of the mind, and there's been plenty of data about that in the last 20 or 30 years. And so I'm glad that human beings who cannot hear work on their other senses so that their lives can be as rich as possible. Thank God for freedom. But so, so in other words, emotional maturity matters. But again, I don't think we have enough to say it's the hallmark of the executive or the effective executive. I just don't. Do I think you should work on it? Yeah, you should work on it. I think you should work to be smarter and more well-read. I, I recommend everyone learn strategy and finance and people systems, and we're going to try to help you with all those things. But is it the thing? No. No. Okay. 
Well, we talk, we talk at manage tools a lot about communications, right? We talk yeah. about it on our podcast. We talk about it within the company. It's the thing we harp on quite a bit for those who don't know the internals of manage tools. You're expected to communicate. So how about interpersonal capability, which communication is part of that? Yeah, sure. So I, I think it's safe to say one is unlikely to become an executive without the ability to create and sustain relationships. Unlikely, but clearly based on the comment I just made about those who struggle with that, it's not definitive. And you have to be able to communicate effectively. Uh, But there are plenty of executives who aren't above average in communication. I'm picturing a bell curve here and thinking of them in the middle. In our previous guidance, for instance, we have a podcast called If Not You, Who?, Uh, We discussed what is widely regarded as a classic technique for determining CEOs of top executives of companies. Top executives are each asked by the board or by a consultant, if not you, who? Meaning the the idea is that we have to take out the questions respondent. So if Mike, if I was the consultant and Mike was one of the EVPs reporting to a CEO, when I ask Mike, if not you, who, I'm taking his possibility of responding to the question with me. I'm taking that out of the equation. Yeah, and if I responded me, then maybe my emotional maturity would be called into question, right? Yeah. See, that's people think, okay, they, they go and ask the top people who should be CEO. I promise if you're reporting to a CEO, everybody's answer is going to be me. So we've learned to say, if not you, who? And the idea, the guidance in the cast is you want to be everybody's number two, because believe me, everybody is their own number one. Uh, so the solution to the problem is to be everybody else's second choice, and which that surely requires a trusting relationship with your, if not you, answer. So if Mike said, I think Joe should be CEO, the assumption is Joe would not recommend, or Mike would not recommend Joe unless Mike was a socio or a psychopath because he wanted Joe to fail, that he didn't believe Joe could do it, that he didn't trust Joe. The idea being that if Joe failed, Mike would have another shot. There are those people in the world, but we'd like to think that modern organizations have gotten good at weeding them out. So yeah, you're going to have to build trusting relationships if you're working at the top. Although there are those who don't score that highly. Look, it's also, I think, axiomatic. You mentioned communication, that an executive must be able to communicate her ideas effectively. And clearly, relationships throughout the organization will make a big difference for her in carrying her message throughout that organization. But there's counterexamples too. Think of the classic example of the driven high D manager who drives his employees hard, is relatively distant and non-communicative, achieves great results, and is awarded or rewarded with greater and greater responsibilities. I think actually this is sort of what people mistakenly think is the only way to get to the top. They're wrong, but yeah, certainly it's in the movies. The common, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. The CEO always murdered murdered somebody in yeah, stupid exactly. books, as if that's a requirement. The ability to kill people. Yeah, when the person gets to the top, he's not going to magically become an empathetic leader. And there are plenty of stories of highly intelligent, logical, rational executives who pay much less attention to interpersonal relationships. In their roles, they think of themselves as a strategist or a financial person, and maybe they surround themselves with good communicators. Okay. So, again, I don't 
I don't see it as dispositive or definitive. Okay, so let's go to another. And, I, and this is one of the things. I'm, I'm disappointed that this isn't talked about more often, oh, but I'm huge. certainly yeah. going to ask you about it, which is personal character. What about personal character? Ugh. Yeah. Character gets very little coverage in modern discussions of professional success. Less experienced professionals probably take this for granted, and so they don't study their own character or the character of their leaders. But humankind's historical studies and beliefs before the last 40 years or so focused almost exclusively on character as the wellspring of success. Probably part of the reason we're not hearing as much about it now is the fractured nature of the scholarship on character. Even the experts don't agree on what comprises character. Right. But people... When they see it, they know it. I ask people about uh, about yeah. their the best executives they know. They almost always start with something around character. That just seems yeah. like the most common thing I hear. Although, in in professional literature, we just don't talk about it often. It's kind of yeah. crazy. I, I don't. I don't. Right. I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. That's of course Justice Potter Stewart of the U.S. Supreme Court description of pornography. The manager tools definition of character is behavioral evidence of the mental and moral qualities of a professional. There it is, folks. I've had it written down for probably 10 years, so I'll say it again. The manager tools, executive tools, career tools, definition of character is behavioral evidence of the mental and moral qualities of a professional. We have long made the case here that internal and identity characteristics are of little value in the discussion of professional life. What one believes or thinks or one's attitude, while important to the individual, certainly, is not the purview of the organization. What's important is the behavior. The simple thought experiment you can do to highlight this, which we've used for years, is imagine the colleague who's relatively unknown to you, whom you've been told has a bad attitude. But now you're associated with this colleague in some way, you've interacted with him or her for a couple of months, and your experience is nothing but professional behavior from him or her. Timeliness, meeting deadlines, effective communications, politeness, smiling, complimenting her teammates, completing her assignments. Does this person have a bad attitude? We would argue she doesn't. And even the mirror image thought experiment with a good attitude, quote unquote, good attitude colleague who then behaves unprofessionally, works as well. Behavior rules, even in an examination of one's character. And at this point, because the scholarship on character is fractured, even more so than the scholarship on the other topics we've brought up, we're going to avoid going over all that. And we're going to cut to the chase because this is a two-part cast, and I already feel bad that it's gone as long as it has. In all our work, folks, with thousands of executives, the singular character trait, the hallmark of effective executives is behavioral discipline. When you eliminate all these other common beliefs about effectiveness in the executive, it oughtn't be a surprise that the hallmark is a character trait. And think about it this way. If you follow the logic, the accepted logic about organizations and the role of the executive, behavioral discipline becomes clear as the discriminator. It's simply, it just is sickeningly logical. 
The organization exists to serve society. We've already made that case. Folks, by the way, if you don't agree with that, the rest of executive tools is going to confound you. And you might as well stop listening. All human organizations exist to serve the external part of that organization, the society in which it resides. The executive's role within the organization is to ensure the continuation of the organization. There are rare exceptions, by the way, when organizations no longer serve their society, and the executive's role is to end the organization ethically and professionally and in a respectful way. But the organization exists to serve society. The executive's role is to ensure the continuation of the organization. Neither of these fundamental principles has anything to do with the individual in the role. Nothing. And in my estimation, this principle is one of the casualties of our modern interest in the personality studies, and I would even call them hagiographies, of chief executives. You know, corporate communications professionals and public relations firms are involved in helping to make an executive, quote, look good, unquote. But ask yourself, an analysis that would highlight somebody's discipline wouldn't get traction. That's not sexy. <laughs> no, it's not. Stupid. Just effective. <laughs> sexy sells. Yeah. Ah, effectiveness. Right? You can't. Even when we say effectiveness, people are like, well, that's not exciting. <laughs> Somebody asked me the day, why'd you name your book Effective Manager? <laughs> I can't even hardly answer. Like, dude, you understand that the greatest management book that's ever been written, according to everybody who knows anything about management, is The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. No, I don't know that. I didn't know that book. Who's Peter Drucker? Like, I'm sorry. I, I have an I have an I'm sorry. I need, I'm sorry. I need to go. I have to go. I have to go throw up. Um, and then the guy said, Well, okay, fine. We'll do what about effective hiring manager? I said, You don't think that logically follows? Okay, whatever. Um, as Peter Drucker hammered home repeatedly to us, the executive must do what his or her role demands of him or her, not what he wants. Not what he hopes for, not what he likes to do, not what he or she wants to do, not what they're capable of because of their intellect or their business skills or their interpersonal skills for that matter, but what the role given to them by the organization from the society the organization serves, what is required. This whole personal interest slash desire slash leveraging one's skills mistake is a common one for far too many executives. Because with the executive role comes a great deal more freedom to make those choices. In fact, there's often a coterie of people around you to help you make them. And they all tend to be sycophantic a little bit too much. And yes, people, if you don't want to have to look up sycophantic. Well, the great thing to excite people is this is really easy to do. And there's lots of people who can help you do it, right? Which yeah. is figure out what, this, what the organization needs from you and simply have the self-discipline to go do it. Right, right. Well, self-discipline, self-discipline. Oh, you, you want to talk about self-discipline. By the way, I want to make a point. The roles that come with all this freedom or more freedom than people think, they don't understand that it also comes 
with greater responsibility. Whatever increase in freedom you get when you become an executive is massively trumped by the increase in your responsibility. But that's not what appeals to people. It's not what appear, appeals to our vain self. It's not, right? So an anecdote we have seen, I have seen so many times in my career, executives introducing themselves in a meeting introduction. One of our agenda items where we have people draw and they draw a photo of a headless person showing a tight picture of a coat and tie in a box. It's happened so many times. I expect senior people to do that. It tells a story and basically it says, this job I'm in is so big, I cannot be myself, which may be one of the most important conceptual shifts that a person can make when they think about becoming an executive. You must decide to do the logical thing. What does society need from this organization? What does this organization need from me? That is what I must do. And I can tell you something. I have seen it over and over and over again. And it's why this cast was written. Smart people who fail. Good people with broad business skills fail. Great strategists fail. Financial people fail. People with people skills fail. People with high EQ fail. Why? Because they are not willing to engage in the derivation necessary to decide what does society need from this organization? What does this organization need from me? And therefore, inevitably, what must I do? You know, the, the best story I recall you shared with me, and I forget whether it was a niece, and uh, it was a niece, it was a woman in a marketing role sales role. Oh, no. And it yeah. was the best. You, you might share it. It was just You're a the best. You're talking about Alora. Alora, Alora exactly, yes, exactly, yes. exactly. Yes. So uh, I had a, a, a sort of a distant family member, uh, no, no blood relation, whom I was close to through family, who was the CFO. You're talking about Alora. Oh, the CFO. Yes, she was CFO. CFO. That's right. That's CFO right. Yeah. of a um, startup drug company in San Diego, actually. She's a wonderful lady. And she happened to be a high C. She's a, she's a very analytical person, a very quiet person, a very reserved person, and wonderful to be around, a, good, a, a truly good person. And Alora approached her job the way any high C would as a CFO of a, of a drug company. And um, her daily routine, which was quite a routine in its nature to the point of repetitive, which served her well, she was good at her job, was that she would go into work, she would get there a little bit early, enough time for her to go into the break room, make a cup of tea, go to her office, close the door, work at her desk until roughly break time, you know, 10, 15 in the morning. She would then open her door, go to the break room, get another cup of tea, go back to her office, close the door, and work until lunchtime. Now, she had meetings throughout the day, of course, and so on. Um, but but um, generally didn't say a lot in those meetings unless it was necessary. At lunchtime, she would leave her office, close the door, walk across. As I recall, it was Balboa Park, happens to be a great park in San Diego, sit by herself, brown bag lunch, and read for the remainder of the time, the lunch hour, while when she was done eating. Then she'd go back to the office, 
And she would go to her office, close the door, work, break later, have a break, and then go back and work and work until five o'clock. And as, as she liked to say, and everybody else could go home on time, if even if they were in the exalted position of CFO with far too much to do, if they didn't spend all their time yakking around the water cooler and actually focused and got things done in a disciplined way. However, there came a time in Alora's history where her company was going to go public. And many of you have talked to us before about the process of an IPO, initial public offering, and going public. And part of that is what is known as a roadshow, where your company, its executives, uh, a series of parties happen, uh, a series of meetings happen between you and potential companies who would be your bankers, who would float your initial offering into the marketplace, for which they are paid a great deal of money. And in order for them to feel good about your chances about your likelihood of gaining capital in the public capital markets, they have to have a detailed understanding of the company. And then there are also parties, social events where you have to go. Well, Alora was not naturally comfortable in social situations. Nevertheless, she would go home before these parties and even after working a full day, she would go home, she'd put on a cocktail dress, and she would go to the party and she would smile and shake hands and laugh at stupid jokes and engage with other people and be friendly and cheerful, all because of the discipline required of her that she knew that was what required for her role in this context due to the nature of an IPO. She would do that night after night after night. And every night after shaking hands and smiling and laughing and being cordial and polite and as, as effervescent and funny as she could be, she would go home and throw up. To me, <laughs> that's discipline. That's discipline. And, and and I'll tell you, it's it's a rare quality on the ground these days. What does your job require of you? I would even argue, uh, I tip my hat here to Dan McGuire, who was on our first Executive Tools cast, talked about the executive waypoint. For many people who are listening, you don't need to be an executive. You can be a manager and do this. You need to take some time. And, you know, we're recording this in September. And so, uh, you could do it at the end of this year and do yourself a favor and do a waypoint and ask yourself, what is required of me? Don't start with what you want. Start with what the organization needs from your role and make sure you satisfy that. Now, for many of you, you're going to discover that there is wide latitude left because the organization has not done a good job of defining your role. And that leaves you to think carefully about it and decide what the definition of your role is. Don't just accept what your boss says. The whole point of all this is effective executives know that they are only as good as their service to the continuation of the organization, which can only occur based on what the organization does for society, how it can continue to do that, and what their role in it must be. And they embrace this even if it doesn't necessarily naturally align with what they think of themselves, how they feel about themselves, what other people tell them about themselves or what their background is. They start with, not themselves, never themselves. They start with, what does my role require? Not of me, but who is in this role? What does the organization need from me, even if it's not my strength? What must I do that no one else can do because of the role I am, or the role I'm in, versus what I would like to do? If you want a career, of like to do's, don't aspire to be an executive because it's not part of the job. 
It's not. Yeah. So simple. So simple. So easy. Yeah. Right. But, but very few people can do it. It's almost like men in black put on the suit. It's the only suit you'll ever wear, uh, you know, after that, right? You, you put on the black suit and now you're an executive and it is your job to do your job. And it takes discipline. That's the thing I've seen over and over and over and over again. Discipline. Another, I'll give you another example, Mike. I know we're running out of time, but another great example, Jack Welch. People saw Jack Welch as this effervescent. I got, I got to work with him a few times. Effervescent, cheerful, outgoing, forceful, interpersonally skilled, friendly, great guy. Also had a PhD, I think, in chemical engineering. Really, really smart. But he knew when he took over the organization that it needed changing. And he, just, he, he figured out what it needed, and then he did that. And then a few years later, when that was done, he did something else. He did not say, I want to do this because this is what appeals to my skills. He did it because he analyzed what the organization needed, and then who other than the CEO to take the lead in what the organization right. needs. That's a great example of discipline, yeah. not personality, not not friendliness, not cheerfulness, not inspirationalness, not communication skills, discipline. Right. And, and if he was a chemical engineer, uh, he probably liked chemical engineering, probably would like talking to chemical engineers. Yeah. I suspect oh, yeah. he spent very little time going around very talking little. to chemical engineers, right? Exactly. Yeah. All right. So I could go, I could go on and on about this because I want it to be like a knife that everybody sees every time they meet me. And say, Mark carries a knife, and the knife says executive discipline on it. So, summarizing. There are a lot of schools of thought regarding executive effectiveness. And in our opinion, most of them are wrong. Useful, helpful, but ultimately wrong. That's dangerous for those of us who are managerial professionals who aspire to more responsibility. Don't follow the latest trend. It's easy to miss behavioral discipline as a theme in executive effectiveness because nobody wants to talk about it. Now, look, guys, we're going to expand more on the details of executives' behavioral discipline in the future. For now, though, in the early days of executive tools, we felt that laying this groundwork was necessary. And that's it, partner. All right. Thank you, my friend. I enjoyed that. I love this topic. And can I say one more thing? Oh, okay. All Discipline right. is available to all. It is democratic. It's like a plebiscite. Right. Everybody gets to you vote. You don't have to be you born get to with vote it. with you your can. time. Yeah. No. It doesn't matter what your identity is. It's available to all of us. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter how you think. You can choose to be disciplined. It's a choice you make. There you go. Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to share this cast with my um Newly for Sydney and those of you been around time, yes. a long time. Remember her coming down the stairs. We were we were recording a podcast in her in her princess shoes. But who is believe not if college. you if you've been with us that long, you're old because because she, <laughs> yeah. she's now a freshman in college. <laughs> yeah, but no, they wouldn't be old if they started when they were like 22 or 23. Well, depends your definition. You're older. Let's put it that way. You're older. Yeah, true. But she should hear she should hear this guest because. Of course, as we all know, that's part of being successful in college, right? So if you're, yep. if you're successful in college, you have the skills necessary to be an effective executive. You could say that. So there you go. Exactly. All right, my friend. Good. Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye.